This is episode 23 with Graham Norris and Dave Snowden. Welcome to the Futures Intelligent Leadership Flowcast. This is your host, Tyler Mongan. I am the president of Haku Global. This is a space for globally minded experts to dialogue about the future of leadership with a focus on the key question, how can leadership be more intelligent about futures? From this conversation, innovative wisdom, practical tools, and actionable insights emerge to help future-ready leaders thrive in an uncertain, complex, and exponentially changing world. Let's jump in to the dialogue. Aloha, and welcome to this episode of the Futures Intelligence Leadership Podcast. This is your host, Tyler Mongan, president of Haku Global. Today's episode, my co-guests are Graham Norris and Dave Snowden. Graham Norris is the founder of Foresight Psychology, delivering keynotes and facilitation to help people get comfortable with the future and make better decisions. His doctoral research focused on change, adaptability, and mindfulness among knowledge workers in China, which has been experiencing exceptional rapid change and development over the past several years. The subjects of the study showed that resilience and flexibility are key to overcoming biases and primal thinking that make optimal decision-making in the modern world challenging. Dave Snowden is a returning guest to the podcast. We're happy to have him here today. Dave is the founder of Cognitive Edge, which was founded in 2005 with the objective of building methods, tools, and capability to utilize insights from complex adaptive systems theory and other scientific disciplines in social systems. Even if you're not familiar with Dave, you may be familiar with or even used one of his decision-making frameworks called the Kniffen Framework, which is developed while at IBM to help understand the context for decision-making. You can find out more about Dave and his work at www.cognitive-edge.com. In this dialogue, we discuss how uncertainty impacts our understanding of space and time, the limitations of self-awareness and memory, the importance of disposition in complexity, how to navigate crisis using diversity and distributive decision-making, why leaders need better decision-making metrics, and why we need to get rid of the culture of the individual leader and embrace contextual and crew-based leadership. Let's listen. So aloha, Graham and Dave, thank you both for joining me here on this episode. And as always, I want to start with this key question of how can leadership be more intelligent about futures given this climate of uncertainty, complexity, and exponential change in the world? And love to start with uh, Graham and hear your perspective from your work. Sure. Well, thanks very much indeed, Tyler. Um, you know, I think uh, you know, looking look at the pandemic, I've just been sort of blown away by looking at how uh, this disruption has, has, has uh, really shifted people's perception of space and in particular time. And maybe that's something we can look at later on, but uh, maybe addressing your specific question, I guess, um, I guess awareness is, is really the first thing that really comes to mind and, and awareness of, of, uh, of probably a couple of things, awareness of, of um, uncertainty and the, the impact uh, that uncertainty has on, on the way we think. Um, and I think because we are sort of our brains are uh, sort of little prediction machines and when something comes along that sort of shakes all of that up uh, and creates a lot of uncertainty like we're seeing at the moment 
um, you know, the impact of that is, you know, we, we, we're sort of highly motivated to reduce that, that uncertainty. Uh, and that can mean, for example, you know, trying to gather lots more information, which itself presents a, a whole host of, uh, of problems, or trying to boil, boil things down to some sort of binary black and white uh, answers that, that oversimplified the situation, or even just sort of, sort of simply giving, giving up and, and, and not sort of doing anything at all, letting the future hit us. Hmm. Um, and, and so you see that with people saying, okay, wait and see, or, or you know, talking about going back to normal, that kind of thing. So awareness of the uncertainty, the, the psychological impact of uncertainty um, hmm. is one thing. And I say the other thing, uh, the other sort of awareness is, is of our limitations. Hmm. So even though we're, we are little prediction machines, um, and we are one of the few animals that can think productively about the future, uh, we're still not very good at it. You know, our memories are notoriously unreliable. Um, we take into account the wrong information. We don't analyze it very well. Mm. We don't look at all the options. And so um, I think sort of understanding those limitations uh, that, that sort of think about the future really isn't a strength of ours uh, and uh, acknowledging that and, and seeing what we can do to use the tools and the methodologies and everything else of, of foresight to help us make better decisions. So I think, I think those two areas are what's uh, really stand out for me. Mm. Great. Thanks, Graham. And Dave? Uh, probably a slightly different take on this. I think part of the problem we got with uncertainty is we confuse leadership with the leader. So we assume the individual is paramount and the individual psychological state is that. And <clears throat> we're kind of like, we're not so much prediction machines. I think that's the wrong metaphor, both the concept of prediction and machine. What we are is pattern sensors, and we're better at sensing patterns in collective groups than we are individually. So we evolved to make decisions as extended families and tribes. And in that context, we can handle very high levels of uncertainty. In fact, nobody would attempt to forecast or predict at a family level, but we do it all the time at a company level. So I think one key thing is to understand that collective leadership has more resilience than individuals as leaders. And you see that in phenomena like crew for, crews, for example, where people are trained in role and role expectation. So I was talking about this this morning with another group. So you can have a leadership crew, which means the pilot can change. So it's not always the same individual, but there's always a pilot. And that's where some of the new thinking is going. I think the second thing is in a complex system, and we are in a complex version of chaotic system. What matters is managing the dispositional state so that and I'm going to be slightly technical here. So the energy gradient of exit is lower than the energy gradient of continuing to make things worse. Yeah. And that actually means prediction is a very dangerous thing to attempt. It's actually more important to describe the present and to identify what in complexity is called the adjacent possibles, the spaces that you can move to, which approximate to where you are and to keep options open within that. Yeah, so I think that the second thing is this concept of dispositionality. And I think the third thing is how you get and, and use information. So we're now talking about big data, rich data, and thick data. So kind of like big data is high volume stuff, algorithmic interpreted, that's the talent type stuff. Thick data is ethnographic data. And then rich data, which is where we work, is self-ethnography or abductive research where you're actually using a cognitively diverse group of people to actually sanitize and feed you data. So you can see wider patterns within that. Yeah. 
Mm. And one final point, going back to where I started on the individual, most of us don't talk, for example, these days about cognitive bias, because what you've actually got are cognitive heuristics. Evolution doesn't throw out things which don't have utility. And every single bias actually collectively has utility because it reduces the cost of making decisions, the energy cost of making decisions. Mm. So things like inattentional blindness mean that we can actually cope. If we paid attention to everything, we couldn't cope with the volume of information. So once you recognize that, that's where you move into this culturally diverse interpretation of data so you can see dominant patterns and outlier patterns before you make a decision. Yeah, that's it's really interesting. Like, because I know a lot of people do talk about um, bias as you know, it's it's inevitable, it's there. But as a leader, you're supposed to try to get rid of it, you know, or are you supposed to try to work with it? Um, what's your take on that, Dave? You can't get rid of it. Yeah. So if we take the classic case in intangible blindness, if you give radiologists or highly trained individuals. Yeah, a batch of x-rays. On the final x-ray, you put a picture of a gorilla, which is 48 times the size of a cancer nodule. And you've previously asked them to look for anomalies. 83% of radiologists won't see it, mm. even though their eyes physically scan it, because they're not expecting to see it. Mm. Yeah. Now, in overall energy terms, that makes a lot of sense. Mm. Mm -hmm. But under conditions of uncertainty, you need to find the 17%. Now, that won't be done by leadership training exercises or focusing on individuals or trying to get rid of the bias. Mm. It's done by presenting situations to literally thousands of people for abstract interpretation. So you can find dominant views, but you can also find minority views like the 17%. And that's kind of like distributed decision support. Mm. And that's built on the weak signal detection work that we originally did for DARPA um, in the US, both before and after 9-11 is you're not going to see things by becoming more rational. You're going to see things by becoming more distributed, if, if, if I was summarizing it quickly. Mm. Any follow-up thoughts on that, Graham? No, I totally agree, yeah. I mean, uh, some of the things uh, I, I've looked at in terms of how people come to the decisions is because, for example, people's uh, memories are not that reliable. Uh, at an individual level, yeah, it's, it's, it's impossible really for people to, uh, uh, maybe impossible is a strong word, but very difficult for people to address those biases and, and sort of uh, tackle those heuristics. And, um, uh, but at a group level, they can still come up with uh, productive decisions mm. that will, that will uh, you know, uh, be safe for them to, uh, for the future. So for example, I was looking at a sort of hunter-gatherer tribe in, in Madagascar and individually, they can't remember accurately what happened in the past and, and how much rainfall there was and if they planted crops, what the results was. But as a group, they could still know and still diversify the risks by planting things that were either uh, productive in the rain or not productive in the rain so they, would, um, so they wouldn't be you know, short of food if there was or wasn't rainfall. And so as a group, they could do that. But individually, they would have probably failed and perished. Hmm. So that, that cognitive diversity was essential there. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Dave, uh, some thoughts? Well, on that, I think, um, I think I think this is kind of like difficult, all right? I think that the danger is we go down simplistic routes, yeah? Or mm -hmm. we try and jump on a single approach. 
basically you make decisions very differently in different contexts mm -hmm. um, and the level of collective variation you need changes yeah so if I take, I mean, we're doing work at the moment on EU handbook and how to manage a crisis. So if you're in a crisis, you've got a variety of routes out. So for example, it's quite probable you've just ignored previous experts. And there's nothing especially wrong with that because somebody always advises you of disaster. So if you're a politician, you've got about 50 disaster predictions in front of you. The fact that retrospectively it turns out the one you should have paid attention to is one of the ones you didn't is not really your fault when it comes down to it, right? Yeah. But if you are in that crisis, then probably you need to go and apologize to the experts who ignored and under-resourced and let them run things for a bit. If you're not sure which expertise to judge, so for example, the conflict between behavioral science and epidemiologists within the UK government decision-making, you probably need to actually get highly focused um, transdisciplinary competition over no more than two or three hours between different expertise to see what's in common what's different how you should apply that and there are structured methods for that yeah. if you've got a series of hypotheses each of which is coherent then you run safe to fail experiments if you're not sure you've got all the hypotheses identified you do a mass mass scenario situational assessment and you involve very large numbers of people from different backgrounds so the key thing is to have those tools and capability known and ready to run for when you need them. You can't be rushing to ad hoc decision processes for a crisis after the crisis has happened. Mm. And one of the ways we talk about this is you need to create network capability for ordinary purpose that you can then activate for extraordinary need. So creating networks in a crisis is better than not having them creating them before the crisis, then repurposing them, that's actually more stable. Mm -hmm. Now, have you, uh, I guess for both of you, have you seen, I'll start with Graham, have you seen um, some good examples <laughs> of, of leadership? Um, or what's your take right now, I guess, on leadership in general and what you've seen and how they're responding? We were talking about uh, um, uh, living in Japan earlier on. So I was yeah. living in Japan in the uh, during the, the financial crisis 2008 2009 i was working for a financial news service at the time i used to handle the earnings reports so companies there just like other places they will tell you the earnings and also give you a forecast uh, about their expectations for the upcoming quarter or year or whatever and um, at that time they, they just stopped doing it um, so the companies uh, in japan and, uh, and other places were like well you know lehman brothers has gone bankrupt and the situation now is, is, is just too crazy. We can't, we can't, uh, it's pointless to give a forecast. And, and we're seeing that again now. Uh, companies saying, well, you know, we have no idea what's going to happen. And I think that's really sort of a terrible um, uh, approach because um, very, very unhealthy because the future's still there and you still need to have an opinion about it. And even in good times, there's still, you don't know what's going to happen, there's still ranges. And just because, you know, various, um, you know, probabilities have changed doesn't change the fact that uh, there was still uh, a range of possibilities and, and you need to have an opinion about that. Um, and so I think, you know, I don't want to sort of misappropriate a, um, uh, a movement or a term, but I think, you know, when the, when the uncertainty increases, people will need to lean into the future more um, and get their arms around it and, and, and try a little bit harder. I mean, I was talking with someone yesterday um, who works for a, a software company and he said his company was, uh, you know, deferring decisions on various things. Actually, not, not you know, that, that sort of 
giving up responsibility for the decision making. You know, they've actually decided not to do anything. Uh, and sort of those implicit decisions that are being made, I think uh, it's, it's a little bit worrying. So, um, you know, when I'm looking at sort of leadership in general, I see a lot of people sort of um, trying to sort of hide behind the uncertainty and say, well, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. So we're going to have to take this sort of hands off, a little bit wait and see approach. Hmm. There are probably three things to say. I mean, one is one of the golden rules of crisis management is the center coordinates, but it distributes decision making. Because the minute the centre starts to make decisions, it gets sucked into the detail and it can't do the coordination. Mm. So whereas in the early days, you might make some hard decisions about slapdown constraints just to create some stability, as soon as possible, you move into coordination. So that's kind of like golden rule number one. Mm. And certainly some of the NHS people we're working with at the moment are demonstrating that big time on a leadership role. I, it's partly because they've been taught, but the, the fundamental role is don't make the decisions coordinated, mm. yeah, because you've got the big picture. But if you're going to distribute the decision making, you distribute to processes, you don't distribute to individuals because individuals will have their own agenda you can't trust. So, crews is one aspect. We use things like three people from a diverse background who don't know each other to validate difficult decisions, say, on ethics. So, there's various ways you can create structured processes around that. I think the other thing is that you need, and again, the good leaders I'm seeing doing this, is you need to start doing the lessons learning. And I'm deliberately saying lessons learning, not lessons learned during the crisis. So again, we're deployed at the moment across Welsh public officials, across NHS staff, using diary-based software to capture lessons learned and opportunity for innovation now. Mm -hmm. Because with the benefit of hindsight, all sorts of biases will come into place. The way we remember things after the event is fairly different. And I think the other, the sort of third lesson is you communicate by engagement. So people need to be engaged in situational assessment and near-term foresight rather than be communicated to. So we're, for example, using whole of workforce as an assessment capability to support leaders because then you're communicating by questions you ask them to engage with hmm. rather than make them passive recipients and there's stuff on there. But overall, I would, I would, I would say, and this is actually a complexity V systems thinking distinction of significance, which I'll bring into play here. Um, most of the systems thinking methods over the past four or five decades have focused on defining the ideal future state, then trying to close the gap. And certainly the anthropological side of complexity or ISIT has always said that's fundamentally an error. What you need to do is to describe the present and identify which pathways you can take. Now, I think during a crisis, you don't want to be imagining a wonderful future, but you do want to be, to use Graham's phrase, leaning into the adjacent possibles. Yeah, so yeah, not yeah, keeping your options open because you're starting a journey, you're not trying to achieve goals. And it's that ability which comes with the coordination and the communication of our engagement. All of these sort of things hang together. Just follow up real quick, Dave, on that, because um, I think it is a, it's a really interesting perspective on it. You know, because a lot of people are thinking about the goals, like you said, and trying to fill the gap. Um, how, how does a leader um, lead through that journey when people want that, that vision, you know? Well, first of all, I mean, if anybody's got kids knows you don't just do what people want, mm. right? 
this is kind of like one of the fundamental errors, all right? Part of your role as a leader is sometimes to do things that people don't want, right? Mm -hmm. um, but there are different types of visions. So let, let's take an example. When Kennedy did the famous, we will get a man on the moon by X, yeah? He actually knew then it was an engineering problem, not a theoretical problem, mm. right? Which actually means you could set some type of goal. I mean, one of the ones I would like people focused on at the moment is the fact that we now know how to re how to refreeze the poles. So the technically the theoretical part of that work is done. Hmm. It's now an engineering program. And if society rose to the challenge, we could give ourselves another 10 to 15 years over the five we've currently got to sort things out. Yeah. Hmm. So that's set in a vision based on the fact that it's a matter of challenging people to execute. Hmm. Yeah. And it's achievable and it's alignable and the criteria answer type that you can have flexible goals and flexible achievements. Yeah. Kennedy actually took a big risk. Yeah. But it kind of like played off. Hmm. The other is where you ignore the present. So I mean, if you look at it, what I'm doing there is I'm not ignoring the present. I'm saying we're now at a stage where we can do this aspirational leap. So it's actually an adjacent possible to land a man on the moon is no longer wild science fiction. It's actually good engineering. It's just a matter of, time to execute yeah but the danger is people don't do that so what actually happens and leadership theory over the last 30 years has perpetuated this the leader sets the vision they ignore the present the leader is brought in from outside we no longer promote leaders internally we hunt people in sideways from consultancy firms and they ignore where we currently are in favor of where we should be and that's what's really dangerous mm. yeah in a crisis is even worse is you can give people false hope, false hope or you also get hit with what are called inconvenient truths yeah i mean uh, the british prime minister got hit with that in parliament this week when he kind of like denied something which turned out to be true mm. yeah um so you don't want to make yourself a hostage to fortune and goals non-achievement of goals means that people lose confidence in you as a leader in your leadership group um, so some of the things, for example, are setting goals about what we don't want to do, not goals about what we do want to do. Because it's much easier to actually get agreement on the negative and to avoid the negative than it is to focus on a positive. It gives you more options, gives you more confidence, which actually matches fairy stories, all fairy stories we tell our children are not stories about achieving the family goals or the KPIs. They're stories about things that we don't want children to do. We teach through failure. Mm. Yeah. So I think this, this sense of direction is the key thing. A leader's goal is to set a sense of direction and be open to discovery on, on journeys. Because if you start a journey, you can sense novelty, you can change what you do. If you have very specific goals, you either achieve or don't achieve them, it becomes binary. Mm. Any uh, follow-up thoughts on that, Graham? No, it's a, it's a very interesting perspective, actually. It, 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 almost talking about um, the way you, uh, you know, approach the future is 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 um, sort of dependent about your attitude toward the present. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's uh, that, that's a really important point is, is to understand the present properly. Otherwise, you know, the you, you, your your bearings towards the future aren't quite right uh, because you know uh, you know often. Um, you know, it reminds me of some research I was, uh, I was reading about um, uh, about hot stimuli. Uh, are you familiar with hot stimuli? Maybe you are, Tyler. You're looking at neuroscience. Yeah. Uh, no, I haven't heard that term. Hot stimuli. So hot stimuli are sort of things that uh, evoke the sort of basic instincts. So it can be sort of 
uh, sort okay. of sexual desire or, or, or fear or hunger or these kinds of things. And um, uh, they found that if you, if you sort of evoke that kind of, uh, of response in people, um, then they sort of give up looking at the future and everything comes about right now. Uh, mm -hmm. And so they, you know, their ability to sort of project into the future or, or plan uh, falls apart. I think that the research is really about looking at, um, I think they got men to look at, you know, women in bikinis cavorting around, or I think they even just gave them a bra to, you know, to play around with. Um, and then they, you know, they would, uh, you know, their view of the future sort of just, uh, there was a quaint academic term, um, a time perspective collapsed toward the present. Mm. So basically, you know, their view of time just became all about the present. Uh, and interestingly for women, I think looking at fast cars uh, evoked the same response for some reason or another. Um, and so, um, you know, and you can see this a little bit now is, you know, people's time horizons seem to be shortening um, to the fact that they can't even really tell even what sort of day of the week it is or, or anything else. So, um, you know, there are healthy ways to look at the present and un unhealthy ways to look at the present and, and being uh, sort of distinguishing between those views. Um, yeah, I, th I think it's, I agree with Dave, it's quite important before uh, sort of trying to set a direction for, for where you want to head in the future. I think you need to be careful as well, because the, the problem with a lot of the psychological experiments, which aren't necessarily cognitive experiments, is that they reduce the variables to get a result they can publish. And, you know, we, we're having huge problems with replication of some of the classic psychological experiments at the moment because you know, minor changes in variables produce radically different outcomes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think the negative thing is, is works in a, in a subtly different way. So we know, for example, that cognitively, not behaviorally, the brain actually records failure faster than success. Yeah. And it's not just the brain, it's a brain body distributed function. Yeah. And we think the evolutionary reason for that is avoidance of failure is a more successful evolutionary strategy than imitation of success. And also gratification, which is kind of like the hot point. Um, human beings have learned sacrifice as an op option to gratification, and we've learned altruism. So there are other factors which kind of like come into play on this. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And it's what Aristotle talked about when he said we have to train people to be virtuous. He said, you can't train people to be ethical, but you can train people to be virtuous. It's a, yeah. it's a habit of behavior, not a compliance with rules. Yeah. So I think that that's where we need to start to work. And I think it's really important that um, fundamentally we start to get leaders who have a degree of scientific education and not the sort of pop science books. I mean, one of the issues is leaders now get surrounded by MBAs and management consultants, whereas before they'd have been surrounded with people with longer, longer periods of time in the firm, with more diverse educational backgrounds. We've done work, for example, by taking executives away and throwing them together with people from disciplines they'd never thought that they would talk with. Mm. And that produces more innovation than bringing in McKinsey's or bringing in PwC or somebody like that. Mm. Yeah. So I think th th this is what we talk about when we talk about naturalizing sense-making. We need to start to play the natural sciences onto social systems. And most social scientists, and I'd include psychologists and economics within that, their experiments never replicate. And that, that's actually quite significant. You don't trust a scientific finding unless it's replicated and unless the context is defined. Mm. 
and natural science is actually a safer source of constraints than that. Any follow-up thoughts on that, Graham? Yeah, no, absolutely agree. I mean, social sciences in general uh, do have a lot of trouble, uh, uh, you know, with the research, making it replicable, replicable or even applicable in, in, in the real world. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you know the, the, the research under those controlled circumstances um, doesn't always uh, make much sense when you get into the real world, which is why behavioral science has become more popular because it tries to a little bit grasp what, what, what goes on. Although, once again, it's not... Uh, <laughs> Not perfectly by any stretch of the imagination. It, it's the big data stuff. I mean, I've had two or three run-ins with help and then those guys, yeah, is they, they, they need huge volume data. And I mean, there's a, there's a wonderful book called Neuroliberalism mm. um, by some behavioral economic, e economists at Aberystwyth University, which basically says most behavioral science has been a subordination of cognitive science to the needs of neoliberal economics. Mm. And you can see that with a nudge unit. Um, they don't nudge, they yank, mm. right? And I think the sort of behavioral side is, I understand the need for it, but we need to get much more sophisticated in the way we use it. Mm. So um, I'd like to uh, start to wrap up here, but I want to wrap up with a kind of a final question for both of you. And um, it's what's the, what do you think is the way forward um, for leadership from where we are today? Uh, we need to get rid of the cult of the individual. Um, we need to think about crews. We need to think mm. about context. Yeah. Mm. Uh, there's a famous adage. I do a lot of work with military, and there's a famous adage in military environments: you have to wait two years of warfare for the peacetime generals to, to die out. So, if you go back to the Second World War, one of the most successful Allied commanders was Patton. He was an absolute bloody bastard, but he knew how to win wars. Mm. Yeah. And Bradley, um, who starts off as his subordinate and ends up as his commander, pulls him out of Germany because he's going to go and fight the Russians. So I think <laughs> the, the need to understand that leadership is contextual is key. Hmm. And you can't have contextual leadership if you focus on individuals. Is it, I mean, and just kind of a follow-up, is that something like a, like having just a single prime minister or a president that kind of model. Yeah, it used to be the case. I mean, if, if you go back to when when I won the primary school mock election, which is back in 1964, right? And you look at the Wilson cabinet, which followed that, it had half a dozen double firsts from Oxford and Cambridge and a lot of conflict. Hmm. So the prime minister was a coordinator, chairman of people with different views. Hmm. What happened under Thatcher and Blair is we switched to a presidential model. Yeah, mm. in which nobody would challenge the leader and therefore you lose diversity in the system. You can see the impact of that now. There's very few people of, of stature yeah, mm. um, within the government because you know the, the presidential type approach eliminates diversity. Mm. So we, we, you know, Britain is meant to be a parliamentary democracy, not a presidency. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we need to start to rethink that a bit. It's no coincidence that actually um, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, the other three countries, are probably showing more leadership at the moment because they're smaller and they're more collective. All their leaders know each other. Mm. There's a sort of population size. You know, Britain, you know, England is very big. Wales, Scotland and Ireland are all under five million. So there's a degree of cohesion there which doesn't happen. Mm. So we need to think about leadership as a diverse distributed function not as an individual quality and we need to get rid of all those maturity models and 
psychometric tests and coaching, yeah? Um, all of which have some utility for an individual, but don't have much utility for leadership. Hmm. And Graham, your thoughts on the way forward? Well, I guess uh, I guess what I'm thinking about is 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 really accountability or, or um, you know a, a better understanding about the results of people's decisions. Because in 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 a company, because there's a lot of things going on, and basically you know leadership roles are often inhabited or, or filled. Uh, by various people over time, um, it's quite hard for that anybody to figure out what decision led to, to what result. Um, you know, it all just sort of ends up um, in the wash. And and I think, I think companies could do or leaders could do a lot better in in, in understanding. A, you know, trying to monitor the impact of decisions over time. Um, not easy to do, um, but unless you start doing that, then you know, you know, it's almost like you know you can make any decision because you never know what the result is. Um, and that, that partly may be because of, you know, the, the sort of short cycles of, um, of reporting. But um, uh, I think, uh, you know, there could be a lot, a lot of benefit in terms of trying to, you know, really analyze the, 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 the impact of specific decisions. Great. Um, any final thoughts, Dave? No, I think um, just remember those key lessons when in a crisis, centralized coordination, distribute decision-making, engage by communication, and start the lessons learned process now. If you follow those three, you're gonna be better off than if you just try and execute a, a goal-based approach. Mm -hmm. And Graham, any last thoughts? Uh... <laughs> No, I think I've just been, uh, I think I've already uh, sort of uh, talked quite a bit about time and how uh, people's time has got distorted. I mean, it, you know, even in space, you know, in terms of space, I mean, I was in China at the end of January and um, we were in Beijing and, um, you know, the, they, they just shut down Wuhan uh, a little bit early for Chinese New Year. Um, and we were in Beijing and, and there wasn't any cases there yet. But, you know, we thought we'd, we'd, we'd leave a bit early, which was just as well, because um you know they cancelled the flights so they got back to the uk complete completely oblivious you know even i know it was like people still buying into the stock market people thought you know even if you didn't think the virus was coming you know the supply chains in china definitely would be disrupted and people completely oblivious about that and you saw this repeated time and time again around the world you know even in northern italy oh it's in the small towns it will never come to the cities no it's in italy it won't come to some other place so even these kinds of um you know cognitive failures that uh um, repeated over and over again. So uh, it's just been very, very interesting to see it sort of played out so starkly and so obviously. Yeah, great. Well, I'd like to end and ask you both to share just one word you want to leave uh, future intelligent leaders. So what's one word you would leave? Start with Dave. One word? One word. <laughs> Coordinate. Coordinate. Graham, one word? um yeah one word I, attention attention great well yeah. thank you thank you dave and graham for joining me on this episode really appreciate your time your energy and your wisdom great thanks so much tyler thanks tyler thank you for joining us today on the flowcast to get a summary of today's dialogue find out more about today's guests listen to previous episodes or discover more about haku global's neuroscience-based futures intelligent leadership programs or customized strategic foresight and innovation sprints visit us at www.haku.global at haku global 
We believe it is time for more futures intelligent leadership. The future is something we need to think more intelligently and feel more deeply about so we can collaborate to discover today's solutions for future problems. If you are in a leadership role and need support or training to scale futures intelligence across your organization, then contact us at Haku Global. This is your host, Tyler Mongan, and until next time, have a preferred and conscious future. Aloha.